Listener warning. On this episode, we deal with subjects related to child abuse and trafficking, and though we are not a true crime podcast and did not want to get into the graphic detail of some of these horrific crimes and rather focus on the story surrounding the life and career of the subject, in order to do that, we had to touch on these topics in a few places. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. And I'm Chris Hansen, and welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and the nitty-gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Chris Hansen. Who is Chris Hansen? He's an award-winning journalist with a storied career that dates back decades and involves many impressive feats of investigative reporting. He's exposed the seedy underbelly of the crack epidemic in Detroit in the 1980s, an underground child trafficking ring in Cambodia, and most notably, he was the host of an extremely popular segment on Dateline NBC in the early 2000s called To Catch a Predator, where he and a team of internet watchdogs set up a sting operation where they'd lure child predators to an empty house, catch them on hidden camera, attempting to solicit sex from underage kids, and in some cases, have them arrested by the police. He also experienced a hard fall from the height of fame that saw him embroiled in a scandalous affair with another reporter, doing damage control after one of the predators he outed committed suicide, divorced from his wife, over a million dollars in debt, evicted from his house, and eventually arrested on fraud charges. He then became a YouTube con man and a caricature of his former self, shamelessly exploiting the abuse of children for profit. So how can I help you? Go ahead, have a seat. I suggest you sit down and take your hands out of your pocket. Hey, Dr. Alvin. Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. How are you? Nice to meet you. Good. We're doing an investigation into the trade of underage prostitutes in Cambodia. And we know that you've frequented some of the places in and around Phnom Penh. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Good. Have a seat right on that stool, please. Sure. No, right here, sir. I know. Please, right there. I'm more than happy to tell you who I am. I am Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC, and we're doing a story on computer predators. Oh. Don't, don't, you, don't want, you don't want to touch anybody. We have assisted in 25 arrests, six convictions. In fact, in the last five weeks, we've had 11 arrests, indictments, or convictions. If you go by the full year with that ratio, we will have more arrests, indictments, and convictions than Julie Posey did in seven years. Why? Because, thank you. Because we have told the public, we've told you, the viewing audience, that you have a role. And two things came to mind. One, it was socially irresponsible to let these guys just go uh, because it was harder for the police to build a case. And two, it was unfulfilling for the viewer to see these guys walk away in the wind just from a practical television production sure. standpoint. I have been in television for 24 years. I just came to get something to eat. And I have very seldom been at a loss for words. Sir, I just came But I don't even know what to ask you first. You're the evil and you're the demon. I watched all your shows to catch the predator and all that. You are a piece of 
Well, okay. I came here to give you a chance to talk about this. You can go and you can up a road. If they made entry, they confronted the suspect. I believe he's in the hallway, and he told them he wasn't going to hurt them, and then shot himself in the head. He had a pistol in his hand. Small caliber. It was a devastating tragedy, a shock to all of us when the 56-year-old, a man who has prosecuted criminals for more than two decades, shot himself. Because the police were not involved in the early online chats, they had to rely on perverted justice, not their own detectives, to know what really happened. Chris Hansen from... Uh, to catch, to catch a, a predator. He has been caught cheating on his wife with a woman 20 years younger than him. Former host of Catch a Predator, Chris Hansen, has been hit with a civilian harassment charge. The Catch a Predator host, Chris Hansen, has been busted. A warrant was issued for Chris. He was arrested on Monday in Connecticut. Some content creators tried to make this look like somehow I backed a real product. I backed Pablo Escobar. That couldn't be farther from the truth. 911, what are you reporting? Hi, uh, there's a person who's been stalking me online and they just showed up to my house. They have a bunch of camera people, like they're YouTube, they're YouTube stalkers. And the one that's knocking on your door, is he the main one that you said has been stalking you? Yes, he's a stalker. Oh. He's yelling, he's yelling things at me through the door right now. Okay, and what, do we know his name at all? It's Chris Hansen. Do you feel like he is helping the investigation itself? No. Okay. <laughs> Hey everyone, I thought I'd take a quiet moment today to talk about some of the drama playing out on social media surrounding a potential television project on the Onision investigation. What is the objective here? Because not only do I not know, but your, your interviewees also don't know. They're not getting the resources you promised them. They're not getting the justice you promised them. So what are you doing? What Chris Hansen was doing throughout most of his Q&A that you saw was deflecting and amplifying. That's very common of someone who is deceitful. It's also very, very effective. Multiple lawyers have already spoken out on this subject and talked at length about how this one action that was done by Chris and his team have irreparably damaged what little case there was against Onision. So Chris Hansen literally destroyed the credibility of one of the only pieces of evidence against Onision that could have actually led to some kind of a conviction or some solid evidence because he pretended to be a part of the FBI investigation and hired a man who deliberately tampered with evidence. Act 1. God, don't let it happen, but if it does, let me be the first one there. Where is the line between advocacy and exploitation in the media? Can anything ever be truly altruistic when there are views, clicks, ratings, advertising revenue, and salaries involved? Or maybe genuine altruism doesn't exist at all. After all, everyone has an agenda. Even if you're not working for fortune, fame, or notoriety, how can we ever parse out our desire to help others from our need to be validated, to be liked, to salve guilt, or to simply feel good about ourselves? Does the way that altruism and the needs of the self are inextricably linked make any selfless act inherently selfish? Are human beings a community working together to overcome life's foibles, or a series of isolated experiences operating in a vacuum of id, bouncing off of each other and sometimes in the pachinko game, one person's actions benefit the others? Does it matter if the end result is altruistic in nature? Certain controversies going on right now about the media's trustworthiness notwithstanding, can their role in social good ever be truly trusted when it's tied so intrinsically to profit, and the ultimate goal is entertainment rather than information delivery? Many people watch documentaries and take them at face value, 
completely unaware that it's common for filmmakers to take narrative liberties with the stories to make it more entertaining. Many people, if they found out information in a documentary wasn't 100% accurate, would feel shocked, appalled, lied to. They demand the filmmakers be held accountable, not realizing it's common practice and pretty much all of them do it. The news media might have been a different story at one point, but the creation of the 24-hour news cycle during the O.J. Simpson trial has led to a world where getting enough content out to fill the time and competing with other news organizations has slowly chipped away at journalistic standards. If it bleeds, it leads. This is a, this is a concept that Werner Herzog talks a lot about. Um, he has this concept called ecstatic truth, which is that sometimes when people are so obsessed with capturing reality, um, it just flattens everything and things become boring and it doesn't make for good narratives, which is slightly different than the conversation we're having, but I feel like it's germane. Like he, he has this concept called ecstatic truth, which is that the lie is actually more truthful than the actual facts. So like he's literally just full on lied and fabricated things in his documentaries that are just whole cloth, not true but build a world that makes things more that prove the point that he's trying to make it on a more spiritual level as opposed to uh, a ones and zeros level. Like he hates, he hates cinema verite, which if you're not familiar is like the process of trying to make movies as real as possible. And, you know, having handheld cameras and going out into the streets and really like making movies the way the world is. Um, he, he, disagrees with that and thinks that that is um an exercise in futility which i think both of the both of these ideas are at play in the way that the media uh has evolved and now shapes our reality it's a it's it's the narrative about emotional truth and even kind of the the branding discussion that we were having on the bella thorne episode which is that specific details and specific facts of certain things don't necessarily matter as strongly to as the overall kind of concept that's being furthered or delivered to the person. And, you know, when you have a specific worldview, sometimes as human beings with the flaws that we have of confirmation bias, the overall concept is more important to us than the little key details in both what Werner Herzog is talking about, as well as the 24-hour news cycle. Whenever a, a person of a certain political affiliation or a certain worldview watches the news, to varying degrees from person to person, they're not really sitting there investing in the details. They're investing in the emotional bigger picture of it. Whenever you are constantly pushing information in people's faces over and over again every day, you have to continue to ratchet up the sensationalism of it. And at a certain point, it becomes less about what the actual story is saying, and it becomes more about the emotional truth of the bigger concept that you're talking about. It's a synecdoche for half of the country's moral fortitude or half of the country's empathy towards other human beings or or half of the country's desire to be self-sufficient and not give handouts or whatever these concepts are. The specific stories are not about the stories. They are about feeding into that bigger machine. One of my favorite clips of Werner Herzog is he's at like a, he's in like Santa Barbara or something. And somebody's asking him about this idea of like, why don't you agree with cinema verite as an approach to telling stories? I don't understand. Like your ecstatic truth thesis doesn't make any sense. And he like kind of starts to explain it 
And then everyone starts booing him, and he just stands up and yells, Happy New Year's, losers! And walks out of the auditorium. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. So, to anyone who uh, doesn't agree with the thesis statement of this Chris Hansen episode, I preemptively say, Happy New Year's, losers! We'll just... We'll, we'll drop that sound clip in the comments anytime anyone gives a shit when we post this. One journalist in particular may embody all of the gray murkiness of these ethical questions better than anybody else in the world. And his name is Chris Hansen. Hansen grew up in Detroit, Michigan, a.k.a. the dumpster fire of the country. As a teenager growing up in West Bloomfield Township, a suburb of Detroit, Hansen watched the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and the media firestorm surrounding it unfold before his eyes. The restaurant that Hoffa was abducted from was just up the road from Hansen's childhood home, and he'd ride his bike over and watch from behind the police line as the investigation unfurled. He saw the news vans flock to the scene, and the hum of reporters and camera people covering the story. He became intoxicated by it. His introduction to journalism wasn't covering economic crises, watchdog groups calling out big business, or political reporting. It was seeing people on the front lines, breaking salacious stories, piranhas in the water, racing to be the first one on the scene to inform the public of some shocking new mystery and maybe even helping to solve it. It created in him a lifelong thirst for pursuing the juiciest, most intense stories and getting the scoop before anyone else did. He didn't want to just report the news. He wanted to dominate it. This thirst and drive, and also maybe his affluent upbringing, would propel his career forward quicker than most. The salad days were just ahead for old Chrissy Hanhans. No relation to old Tommy Hanhans, director of the Zodiac Killer from a previous episode of Deep Cuts. From there, Hansen went to college at Michigan State University and got a bachelor's degree in telecommunications. He worked for the school paper as a sports writer and did reporting on the college's radio station. Can you imagine a young version of the distinct Chris Hansen voice and cadence coming through the boombox in your dorm room, talking about student council petitioning for the lowering of meal plan prices or something? He graduated in 1981, but before ever receiving his degree, in his senior year in college, he met Howard Lanker, a news anchor for WILX Channel 10 in Lansing, Michigan, who became his mentor. He was hired to work at the station as a reporter before even graduating. On his first ever reporter job, not even graduated from college yet, he was in the right place at the right time and got assigned to cover a prison riot nearby. He was on the scene, covering the riots, and then interviewed prisoners afterward. And because he looked out and was basically the only reporter there covering the story, his segment aired nationally on CNN and NBC. His first ever part-time college job got him a nationally syndicated segment covering a prison riot. Off the strength of that, His career as a reporter started gaining momentum. He worked in Florida for a couple years and then moved back to Detroit. He even got to interview then-Vice President George H.W. Bush. The real turning point in his career, however, was in July of 1987. He got his first big break and did a five-part investigation into the Detroit crack cocaine epidemic for WXYA-TV Channel 7. This chamber here holds 12 shotgun shells and everything. As part of a five-part series on the crack problem, I went on dozens and dozens and dozens of narcotics raids with a no-crack task force. It was crazy. I mean, today you probably wouldn't get away with that. Agents say the gang was well-armed. In many of the homes, they found assault weapons. This story had everything Hansen could want. It was a massive, salacious story where he was able to flip over the beast of 1980s Detroit and show the public the seedy underbelly of this growing problem. He got to be out in the field, actually confronting the story head-on. He was in the trenches, working with the DEA and the Detroit Police Department directly. He even broke one of the biggest stories in the history of drug reporting, the Chambers Brothers. 
Four brothers from Chicago who were discovered to control the entire crack cocaine business in Detroit, making $55 million a year from crack sales and dealing half the city's supply of crack. Hansen was right there alongside the police and the feds when they busted the Chambers brothers. He helped blow the lid off the entire operation. But in the course of some of these raids, they discovered a cache of videotapes. And this is one of the drug homes owned by the Chambers brothers, the notorious drug gang. Money, money, money! We rich, goddammit! $150,000 cash! They'd go through the homes, the faucets, 24 karat gold. Now this was amazing stuff. Once upon a time, drug dealers was truly idolized. They had all the man toys that they wanted. This was real journalism. In in the early stages of Chris Hansen's career, this this whole part is the craziest stuff to me because you know we we know of all these legendary journalists. We know we you know we have we know of like we know of Tom Brokaw and you know all all these people who we we see as these like legendary um, reporters and journalists and um, newscasters who were there for these like huge events in history. But the stuff later on that we're going to talk about so just eclipses his early career that I feel like number one, nobody talks about. And I also feel like people don't know about the fact that before what he ended up becoming and what he got famous for, he was a part of some like world changing news reporting. And it's really, it's really nuts that people just don't know that about him. They just know him as one specific thing and nobody has any idea. Like you literally contributed to like ending a drug cartel in Detroit. Hansen suddenly became a name on people's lips in the Michigan news world. He won Best TV Reporter in Detroit Monthly and was generally celebrated by his colleagues. However, his first big story also resulted in his first big misstep. Though the world and even Hansen wouldn't know until years later. As part of the five-part investigation, Hansen covered a 17-year-old crack dealer named Richard Wershe Jr., or White Boy Rick, as he was purported to be called. The segment about Wershe portrayed him as a child wonderkin of underground crack dealing, becoming a kingpin and major player in the Detroit crack game before even graduating high school. Wershe was busted for possessing eight kilos of cocaine, the charge which now has him serving a life sentence. You're not trying to tell me that you're an angel, that you never did anything wrong, right? I've been involved in wrongdoing, but I don't feel I did anything to receive a life sentence. Officers say a tussle started, a fight almost, between Worshi Grissom and the officers. Investigators say that Worshi took off running. About 25 minutes, a half hour later, the police find him and they roughed him up pretty good to the point where he had to go to the hospital. For the next three or four hours, the police are combing the neighborhood looking for drugs. They got an anonymous tip. Later, more police arrived and eventually they found a box containing eight kilos of cocaine. However, this wasn't true. Wershe was actually an informant who had been working for the FBI since he was 14 years old, aiding in their ongoing investigation into the local crack dealing community. White Boy Rick nevertheless became nationally known thanks to Hanson's segment, which immediately caught the attention of the FBI. It was majorly unethical for them to have an underage informant on the payroll, 
knowingly sending him into the lion's den of the world of Detroit crack dealers. They severed all ties with Wershey, immediately and covered up any evidence of their informant relationship with him. Without the support of the FBI, Wershey started a career of crack dealing for real, and eventually was arrested and sentenced to life in jail. Rick Jr.'s boss was the FBI. He's believed to be the Bureau's youngest informant ever. I think he earned nearly $40,000 in informant fees. Were you ever a cocaine kingpin? And then in the press, they come out and say, drug kingpin, white boy Rick. Kingpin of what? Who? He didn't have a drug gang. He didn't have crack houses. Ever kill anyone? No. Ever order anyone killed? No. I'm sorry to tell you that the legend of white boy Rick is just not true. That's This is one of the crazier things to me in this whole story, that they didn't, like, help him. They didn't put him in witness protection or... No, they were like, just hey. like... Yeah, they were just like, uh, bye! Well, the, it, was, it, was, it was totally illegal and totally breaking a million different code of ethics for them to be to have a 14-year-old kid working for them and for the FBI to be like, 14-year-old kid, go deal crack. So when they when they when this was revealed, which it was never supposed to be known, there was it was a total clandestine sort of operation by the FBI, you know, operating in in shades of gray. And when it was discovered, or not when it was discovered, but whenever he became focused on, they were just like, "We don't know him. What are you talking about?" It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. And you know, it ruined ruined the kid's life. I mean, he eventually found justice, and you know, his his case was reassessed, but. Not until he was in, you know, in his fifties and having had rotted in prison for the most of his life. So at that point, it's like, cool. I guess I'm out of jail now. But I, my entire life was just wasted, which sucks. It wasn't until 30 years later, Wershey's ties to the FBI were brought to light, and his case was reassessed. To Hanson's credit, he was a vocal advocate for letting Wershey out of jail, and he was finally paroled after spending three decades behind bars for dealing crack as a 17-year-old because the FBI asked him to. They even made a movie about it starring Matthew McConaughey. The 650 lifer law that uh, where she was convicted under uh, was repealed in 1998. So the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan said that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. What happens if three or four or five, ten years down the road, Rick, you get out of it? What do you do then? Start my life over. Try and start from the beginning, you know. I want to go home, be able to raise my kids, have a family, get a job somewhere, man, lead a normal life. Did he get a large monetary settlement? Yeah, I mean, not every one of these situations, but a lot of times... When these movies go into production, they kind of do it with it in mind that they're going to make the person like an executive producer and get them paid. Um, yeah, that's but that's not even what I'm talking about. No, I you mean, mean you yes. mean you mean from the from the federal yeah. government. Yeah, he did. But in, okay. in addition to that, he also was sort of brought on as a producer of this film. So he saw like, you know, monetary gain from the film as well. From there, Hansen worked for WDIV TV Channel 4 from 1988 to 1993 before being hired as a reporter for NOW with anchors Tom Brokaw and Katie Couric. Before leaving Channel 4, however, Hanson- hey, hold, hey, hold, hold on, let me see if I can do this. Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Tom Brokaw. 
Now you're just trying out characters. Like that wasn't even just, that wasn't even Tom, organically woven into anything. Tom Brunkaw. I don't actually know what he sounds other than Tom Brunkaw. That's all. I, Tom Brokaw. It's not bad. It's more. It's more uh, Thurston Howell the Third from Gilligan's Island. But I need to. I need. I would have to hear him. I need to hear what Tom Brokaw. It's kind of like that. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not bad. It's definitely no. Um, I'm Tom Brokaw. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not as good as the time you tried out a uh, Marlon Brando impression for the first time and it was like solid. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Before leaving Channel Four, however, Hansen made the most pivotal decision of his life something that would shape the direction of the rest of his career and lead him to where he is today. He befriended a fellow reporter who had been recently hired at the station, Kevin Dietz, and before leaving, gave him his beeper full of contacts. As a final bit of leverage before leaving Channel 4, he told them that if they wanted someone to cover all the same stories he was covering for them, they should probably ask the guy with the beeper. Keep this in mind because it will definitely come into play later on. For now, Hansen covered many of the types of stories he was becoming known for, he did an investigation into the lack of regulation of bounty hunters, most notably helping to expose the clearly racist psychopath bounty hunter Keith Rodis, who would regularly round up a gang, raid the house of predominantly black men with warrants out for their arrests for petty crimes like shoplifting, and violently assault and rob them before turning them into the police. One bounty hunter that law enforcement did go after is Keith Rodis. He armed his Louisiana team as if it was going to war. We brought sawed-off shotguns, uh, 357s, 9mm, uh, Tech 9. Curtis Turner will never forget the night Rodis came after him. Turner had shoplifted two bottles of aspirin. He was on a $500 bond. By mistake, he showed up a day late for his court date. But by the time the bounty hunters showed up at his door, he wasn't wanted anymore. Oh, about six of them, they all rush in, guns drawn. They come over to me and knock all my furniture down that was in that area. And they come over with the guns and the billy clubs and they hit me, spraying me with mace. When Keith Rodas and his gang of bounty hunters were finished with Curtis Turner, this is what he looked like. When they grabbed me by the legs and dragged me through this door, they don't get me up on my feet or nothing. They just grab the shackles and drug me down this concrete stair. Mr. Turner, everything that he got or that happened to him, he brought on himself. It's better than me shooting him. Better than me shooting him. Yeah. It's like a it's like a weird Billy Bob Thornton character. It's like what if Lobo start Billy Bob Thornton? Oof. Oof. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the 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 maybe maybe we'll do an episode on this because I've always been fascinated by the world of bounty hunters and just like and private detectives as well. I think we talked about that on some episode mm-hmm. um, of just like where the line is and how like I've always just been fascinated with like because, you know, when you watch movies, they're presented as just like these vigilantes who can bust bad guys and things like that. Oh, we talked about it on the J.J. Arms episode. Um but, you know, where's the line between the, you know, actual law enforcement and like these these licensed civilian um, private detectives and bounty hunters and what can they do and what can they not do? It's, it's super fascinating to me. Um, and, and this this story, you know, out of anything really shows like, you know, where is that line? Because these guys were apparently operating within some realm of uh their 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 rights as bounty hunters but then they were also just like 
breaking into people's houses, robbing them, like not following the proper chain of command of like even verifying that the person was still wanted anymore before doing this, which none of that obviously is legal. And yet they were doing this and they were getting away with it until this expose happened. Um, also, I feel like I need to state for the record. Uh, yes, Keith Rodas does have a mullet. Yep. 100%. Hansen's expose got Rodas stripped of his ability to be a bounty hunter but he was later busted for assaulting and robbing a black man who had previously had a warrant out for his arrest, but the warrant had been recalled. The police were called and they chased Rodas in his vehicle until Rodas eventually pulled to the side of the road, pulled out his pistol, and shot himself before he could be arrested. Dude could not live in a world where he wasn't allowed to indiscriminately beat black men without repercussions. In 1994, now merged with Dateline NBC, and Hansen was one chess move closer to fulfilling his destiny. He was now a part of the Dateline family, and a few steps away from the Chris Hansen that we all know and love today. Because of the particular types of stories he pursued, and how effectively he was at reporting on them, he became the network's go-to guy for covering huge, hard-hitting, often shocking national stories. He covered the Oklahoma City bombing, Medicare fraud, the hidden danger of escalators, and much more. He even did an investigation in 1996 that exposed the lack of proper airport security across the country, which actually led to the Federal Aviation Administration revising their security policies. But their revisions weren't drastic enough, and many people claimed that Hansen's segment on airport security was a grim warning about the inevitability of an event like 9-11, which Hansen also covered extensively for Dateline. The next big story for Hansen, however, was another pivotal turning point for his career. In 2002, he did an hour-long special on the Indian silk trade. In this investigation, Hansen and his crew was able to link Indian child slave labor to many of the high-end clothing brands in the US. The popularity and success of this special showed Hansen one thing. People ate up stories about the exploitation of children, so he leaned into it hard for his next special. There are some places you might never have heard about, notorious places, the kind of places a sexual predator would be willing to travel halfway around the world to reach. Destinations like this dusty village in Southeast Asia. Here, the prey is plentiful and easy to stalk. Children peddled by young hustlers like this. These are the children born into poverty and sold for sex. Oof. Oof, those kids are so young. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, and I mean, uh, up until, I mean, obviously, obviously this wasn't something that people thought was okay, but up until this story, which once again is kind of crazy that Hanson was kind of involved in in something like this, up until this story, the greater public didn't know about this, but the government and, and federal law enforcement and things were well aware that this was just a normal thing that a lot of people did. But it was just kind of a thing where, uh, I, yeah, I guess sometimes these people just go and they travel to another country and they do horrible things to trafficked children and then they come back and we know that they did it and we know who they are and we just have to kind of let it go because it's not our jurisdiction. And it, and it really wasn't until this special that it became this bigger conversation that I mean, arguably, it didn't really help much, as we'll talk about in a, in a second, because of that jurisdictional issue that, you know, these people, unless you can figure out some kind of way of cooperating with different law enforcements, you know, in, you know, internationally, there's literally nothing you can do. Like you could know that guy goes to Cambodia and like purchases children, but 
there's literally nothing we can do about it because he did it in a different country. In 2004, Hansen did another hour-long special on the child sex trade in Cambodia. In addition to christening his trademark focus on child predators, it also established the technique he would go on to use in his future child predator investigations. Working in tandem with law enforcement and a watchdog group, in this case one called Justice Mission. For this investigation, undercover men would pose as predators, soliciting young girls on the streets of Cambodia wearing hidden cameras. During these undercover investigations, the decoys discovered a network of young Cambodian boys acting as pimps for older men offering up girls as young as five years old. I know that's disgusting and kind of hard to hear, but fortunately this investigation led to three dozen girls rescued and the arrest of a dozen traffickers. During the special, Hansen was also able to interview Cambodia's Minister of Women's Affairs, where he essentially sat her down, showed her all the hidden camera footage they had captured, and allowed her to uncomfortably stew in how terrible she was at her job on camera for 10 minutes. And then he interviewed then US Secretary of State Colin Powell about the need to crack down on what is known as sex tourism, which is a system by which American citizens can skirt prostitution laws by traveling to other countries and engaging in illegal activity that they can then flee the country and escape any liability for. And while sex tourism can often be utilized to employ the services of age-appropriate consenting sex workers, sometimes in countries where it's actually legal, which probably isn't that big of a deal, it can also be known as a safe haven for child predators and traffickers, which is obviously horrifying beyond description. Career turning point number three. Almost as an afterthought, the crew was handed some hidden camera footage taken by a humanitarian activist talking to an American doctor named Jerry Album. In the footage, the man strikes up a conversation with Album about buying underage prostitutes, and Album essentially gives him step-by-step -step advice on how to do it. Like this doctor from Oklahoma our camera crew met up with in the heart of Phnom Penh. Jerry Album says he likes Cambodia so much he visits several times a year. The Cambodian people have been most welcome and, and most courteous at all times and they've got some of the most remarkable architectural finds here. Most notably, the temples of Angkor Wat. But it's not only the legendary temples of Angkor Wat that draw Dr. Album to Cambodia. Our hidden cameras found that he, like thousands of other tourists, comes here for another purpose. This is Martinis. It's a nightclub where young women outnumber men 10 to 1. And many of the women are for sale. Whenever Dr. Album is in town, he likes to hang out here, as we witnessed more than once during our stay. Even though prostitution is illegal in Cambodia, finding a girlfriend for the night at Martini's takes just a few words, a few dollars, and a stroll out the door. But the action at Martini's pales compared with what else we're about to see in Cambodia. The human rights investigator with a hidden camera found a visitor who was willing to admit he's not here for the scenic beauty or the local cuisine. Okay, it's the first time here? Yeah. Okay. When the camera was hidden, this American prowling Svepak was happy to brag about his exploits. Usually I buy out three girls for 50 bucks. Look familiar? He should. He's Jerry Album, the same American doctor we met up with on our arrival in Phnom Penh. And now we know for sure he's interested in more than this country's historic temples. In fact, Dr. Album offers pointers to a man he believes is a sex tourist. First, on how to cover his trail. Don't tell anyone you're going to Cambodia, he says, but Thailand instead. Yeah, friends are educated in research. They may know this place has a reputation. You don't want to take yourself 
one slip and you can run into trouble, he says. Like the time he snapped a photo of one of the girls here. And uh, I showed a picture of her to a friend. I say, so I got a huge pedophilia. Really? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, you, she, she weighed all about 90. So, she was. He says he doesn't go for the youngest of girls. He prefers teenagers. I mean, 15, 16, maybe 14 year old might sneak in if you can't tell the age. But, you know, I don't think she's little, really little. Okay. That's just a little bit of a on my part. Uh, Man, that's fucking dark. Yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple aspects of this. The obvious one is that this is horrifying and disgusting, and this person is, you know, just vile human garbage. I mean, this is the type of person that would be on Chris Hansen's show. Um, but there's a lot going on here psychologically that it is really dark and really fascinating and really disgusting. The first thing is he says in giving this advice, he says to keep a low profile. But number one, he's openly just he sees a stranger and he starts striking up a conversation with him. And then he just openly offers up all this information to him about these horribly illicit, illegal things that he's doing. Is that keeping a low profile is like confiding the darkest secrets you have to a stranger on the street. Number two, like was that guy was that guy just wearing a t-shirt that was like, yes, I too am a sex tourist. Like why, what? Yeah, what? I don't know. And, and, and second of all, just the mere fact that he's doing this, it's so weird and dark and gross that he's even telling this guy these things. Because if you, if you were, if you were doing something like this, what do you stand to gain from helping another guy do it too? He's like getting off on bragging about it to this guy. He's bragging to this guy about this and giving him advice in the same way that some shitty, like self-important guy who thinks he's like a hotshot in like movie producing or whatever, who, but he's actually not tries to like give advice to somebody. And this is how you do it. This is how you break into the movie industry. And he doesn't, he's not actually successful. He's actually compensating for the fact that he is not very successful. And he's trying to cultivate this weird power dynamic with somebody who's less successful than he is and making himself feel bigger by positioning himself as some kind of like weird mentor to this other person. And he's doing that with this, which is really dark and gross that that is a thing that he is like feeling braggadocious about. And the last thing is, Going back to the low profile thing, you agreed to be interviewed on camera for a news investigation that was happening, an American news investigation that was happening in Cambodia at the time you were there. And he thought it was just like a profile of Cambodia or whatever. But if you know that there's this news crew of Americans covering this at the same time that you're there doing it, and then you agree to be on camera and be interviewed. I don't know. This, what, what, how fucking dumb could this guy be? in addition to being a disgusting, horrible piece of shit. However, there's kind of a bittersweet, maybe more on the side of bitter resolution to this. On the strength of this footage, Hansen and his crew decided to tack on an additional moment to the special where Hansen waited in the parking garage of the hospital that Dr. Album worked at and confronted him about the footage later on camera. His reaction is some of the most intense cringing you'll likely do all month. Hey, Dr. Album. Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. How are you? Well, nice to meet you. Good. We're doing an investigation into the trade of underage prostitutes in Cambodia. And we know that you've frequented 
some of the places in and around Phnom Penh and Sveipak. That's true. I have visited there many times. With underage girls? No. Not to my knowledge. May I show you a videotape? Yes. But not on camera. Well, I think you want to see this. We showed him some of the hidden camera video. We say 15, 16, maybe a 14-year-old will sneak in. That's underage, doctor. I don't want to say anything more, but I've, I've read about things like this. I've talked to people who have done this, but I deny any participation in anything like this. I don't support it. But aren't you supporting it by going down? I, I support the people down there. I, the people down there are in tremendous poverty. They're very delightful people. And I'd like to go down there and visit my friends and support the people that I know. Dr. Album says he hasn't violated any laws, especially a U.S. law aimed at Americans traveling to other countries to have sex with children. He explained his understanding of that law when he gave advice to a stranger back in Cambodia. Now, you don't get in trouble unless they prove that the travel the intent of having underage sex. You just did it by accident, it's okay. That would be hard to prosecute. He was ready with the same defense when we caught up with him. Well, I don't go down there with the intent of trafficking or participating in a sex with underage girls. But Dr. Album may be in for a surprise because President Bush has signed a new law. Now, prosecutors only have to prove that a traveler like Dr. Album had sex with someone younger than 18. So the technicality he's relying on won't hold up anymore. It's not my intent. So it may happen from time to time, but that's not what you're trying to do. I don't want to say it even happens from time to time. It seems to be what you're indicating on this tape. It may happen to other people from time to time. I'm not saying that it happens to me. I've, there are many things I've read about, many things people have talked to me about, and I don't want to participate and make judgments of something that may have said when I was drunk or, or may have been slipped a pill. Who knows? That is not... Drunk or slipped a pill? Right. That's your defense? Yes. Uh, from, one, from, one, from one episode that I, I don't even recognize myself, I don't even recognize myself saying something like that to people. But like you know that. this is you. I would agree that is me. You also talk about getting three girls for the night for $50. Uh, I don't want to comment specifically on anything on there uh, anymore, okay? I will deny anything, any illegal activity. Uh, by United States laws, and I will leave it at that. Watching a man's world crumble around him. The thing that's so interesting about that, too, is this is obviously somebody who knows that they're in the wrong. Like, his expression is like the kid in middle school who's just like, please don't call my parents. Yeah. Please don't call my parents. Mm -hmm. And then just just the blatant rejection of reality where, like, he knows what he's saying doesn't make any sense. And he knows that we know that what he's saying doesn't make any sense. And we know that he knows that we know. But he's still just keeping on doing it because what else do you do in that situation? Like, you, you know what be- you do in that situation? You don't have sex with children in yeah. fucking Cambodia. That's <laughs> what you in, do in that situation. In the first place. But also, it's just like this is the early flashes of it. But who in this world is better at that than Chris Hansen is? That's the reason why he goes on to become known for this, because he's like, there's something about his demeanor and the way that he confronts these situations that just feel like it's like you don't stand a chance. The disappointed, scolding dad energy that he has, it's just uncanny. Yeah, it's really. uh, Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very 
I expected so much more of you, which is weird because that's awful. Like he just raped all those kids. And the fact that Americans get off on, I expected so much more of you. Oh, well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that a lot later. That that's, that's a big discussion for kind of our open discussion part of, of the episode or episode 12 or whatever. Episode 75 of yeah. the Chris Hansen mythology trilogy. Yeah. Just whatever. Just the, the entire concept of this as entertainment. We're going to talk about that. We're going to go, we're going to go deep into that. Put a pin in it, my boy. <laughs> That's your new catchphrase. <laughs> well, it's either that or cut the mustard. <laughs> Why not both? Yeah. Put a mustard in that pin, my boy. Despite the hidden camera footage, Hansen's confrontation with Album, as well as the fact that he showed the footage to Colin Powell and got a promise on camera that something would be done to get this man behind bars. Really? Maybe a doctor, but he's a criminal. He's a criminal, and if he can be brought to justice, he will be brought to justice. The law requires it, and uh, he won't have to worry about being a doctor because he'll be doing time in jail, and that's where he belongs. It seems that no legal action ever came against Album. There's really no information about this dude beyond Hansen's investigation anywhere on the internet, so I guess he just went on living his normal life? Which, yeah, I... I this, What's his first name again? What's his first name again? Jerry. And Jerry I, Album? Yeah, I, I did research on this guy, and it ends at this investigation. That's the end of any reference to him in any kind of publicly available news articles on the internet. So he did this stuff in Com- Cambodia... The hospital that Chris Hansen confronts him at is not actually in the United States, it's in Guam. He was in Guam filling in in some hospital or whatever where they confronted him. And, you know, they mentioned in, in the news packet that they had just changed this law to where it was no longer contingent on proving intent, but that they just needed to prove that it happened, which seems pretty compelling. That's not him, right? That is him. He's on Facebook. Oh my god! Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent him. Yeah, he's he's much older. He's he's lost weight and he just looks older. But that is him. He is a he has thirty seven friends. Uh, of course. His his name is on his name on Facebook is Gerald Album. Uh, Gerald. Oh yeah, Gerald with a J. Yeah. Uh, is this his wife? His sister? Who is this? Album is one of his friends who's in a at fuck oh my god dave this is fucking insane yeah i did not i did not look on facebook i i I was i was doing research and trying to find this dude and trying to find articles about anything i was trying to find out any update on what could have happened to him after this investigation and there's nothing so he ostensibly just he could they couldn't pin anything to him and he went on about his life. But he's just on Facebook. Yeah. He, so the, the I don't know if this is his full profile or if I mean, there's it's stuff, just set to private. There's stuff the missing. Yeah, there's stuff missing because it's set to private. But the last post that we can publicly see is something that was shared in 2018, which is just him trying to get signatures for some kind of petition. Help Gerald Album get more signatures. We need 128 more signatures today. It's a change.org. Support science and professor Tim Nowicks. We are writing to ask if you are willing to join in signing a letter in defense of science and professor Tim Nowicks of South Africa. Many of you know that the story of professor Nowicks 
He is world, a world-famous professor, now emeritus, of exercise science and sports medicine at the University of Cape Town, who happened to discover that a low-carb diet was highly effective in a treatment for obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other nutrition-related diseases. He became famous in South Africa for promoting the diet, and that and this has led to various forms of retaliation by his colleagues. Perhaps most stunning, however, has been the medical authorities, HPCSA, have subjected Professor Nowicks over the past few years to a public hearing with his medical license hanging in the balance. The charge? Sending a tweet to a breastfeeding mother that she could safely wean her child onto LCHF diet. Specifically, he was charged with giving unconventional advice that is not evidence-based. <laughs> Professor Nowicks was actually acquitted last April, but the medical board is appealing its own decision, although there are many disturbing ethical issues surrounding the HPCSA's treatment of Professor Nowicks. The petition will only focus on the fact that his advice is evidence-based and that this evidence is acknowledged by groups of physicians, other healthcare providers, scientists, and researchers. So basically, he's defending, he's trying to get a bunch of people to sign a petition to defend this this doctor. Yeah, and that's a, that's a post we can see, and you have and you can see comments, people being like, "Incredible, I signed it. Thanks." He's a modern Galileo. That Jerry Album said that. And then the only other post we can see is a picture of him, where he is much thinner. It, I mean, the listeners at home, you can't, you didn't see him in the first place, but he's like a, he's like a, you know, he was a middle aged, kind of slightly balding. Uh, sort of rotund gentleman. And in this picture, which is from much more recently, he is basically lost all of his weight. He's really skinny, but noticeably older, wearing wearing the age of a man who has a horrible secret weighing on him that he's terrified is going to come back to haunt him any day now. That and photo, uh, the photo in question was posted on April 12th, 2016. Um, around the same time, who I'm assuming is his wife, uh, she commented looking handsome. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, this is his sister. It's, I bet it's his sister. She works at bro. That's insane. Like he did not get prosecuted because obviously because of whatever international jurisdictional issues or whatever. But like this, this is all over the internet. Like this was a, this was a nationally syndicated special back in the early 2000s and now it's just all over youtube like you can you know you go to youtube and you can type in you can type in anything from you can type in jerry album and you're going to get footage of him from this special you can type in doctor predator and that's going to bring up uh jerry album footage like this is this is all over the place so it's that's so insane that he just lives his life normally still also his sister slash wife whoever she is uh she way anti-Palestine, way anti-Palestine. Hmm. Posting a bunch of weird stuff. Weird, weird stuff. Unfucking real. Jesus. Yeah. And like, th- there is no gray area to what he did. There is no gray area. He did some of the most horrific things that a person can do. Jesus. You think Christ. he still? You think he still does it? You think he? I don't know. I mean. <laughs> 
I want to say if I was in that position, I definitely wouldn't. But that's I think that's because I'm not a psychopath who would ever do that in the first place. So my my mind can't even go there like because, you know, I, I can't even relate to whatever compulsions he might have or whatever. So I have no idea. He has one thing that he's liked on Facebook, a single thing. Uh, the author Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. I don't know who this author is, but he's the only page that Gerald has liked. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, he's like one, one thing. And he's following three people. Dr. Paul Mason, yoga, and Marika Sorbos. This is so strange. What yoga? He lives in This is so weird. I don't know what's weirder. The fact that this guy is just on Facebook or the fact that I found him in like 30 seconds. Yeah. You yeah, you just typed in his name and it was right there and it's a hundred percent him. Oh. Can I see a picture of him again? Can I see a picture of the the older one or younger it's him? It's definitely it's it's definitely him. Is it? It's a it's definitely him. I I, I mean think, I think this, this guy this, looks this is the like best this is the best footage. It's it's a hundred and fifty percent him. That's him, right? It's a hundred percent him. He's just lost he's lost all the weight. And he's older, obviously, but it's a hundred percent him. Yeah, the nose is the same. His eyes do that kind of slanty thing that make him look like he's always wincing. Mm-hmm. Wrinkles in the forehead is the same. He has less hair, you know, as of four years ago. Obviously, still rocking that weird '90s mustache, though. Man, yeah, that's him. <sighs> Jesus. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, I that's. Didn't, that- I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to derail your. <laughs> that hits harder than my conclusion. Dude, he has a brother too album who's an at what the fuck this is so weird that his whole family is just right here we're on facebook there's no way we don't know about this horrific thing that he's done because it was on national television he was caught directly on camera saying these things wow album his sister i'm assuming she posted one hour ago and she's just posting a video of a rainbow. It has 37 views. This is so weird. This is so weird. Wow. Like how do, how do you how do you navigate that life? How do you navigate after being out like you're outed on national television for this thing that you've done which is just beyond inhumane, beyond disgusting, beyond, you know, the most vile crime you can commit. And it and it, it's outed publicly. And then you just go on with your life and, and, and through this series of loopholes you just you you don't actually get you know in trouble for it and then you just continue on your life and he just walks around working his job going to stores people see him ostensibly sometimes he's recognized and maybe people don't say anything maybe sometimes people do say things maybe he knows people and they bring it up sometimes and then what what does he do how did oh jesus how does he navigate that i have no idea man so aside from that seems like nothing ever came of that story he literally talked to Colin Powell and showed him the footage. And Colin Powell was like, this guy has to go to prison, but then never followed up with it. However, this clip of Hansen confronting Album was the final finishing touch to the format that Hansen would later go on to perfect. A charismatic and stern reporter, backed by a team of law enforcement officers and specialized watchdogs, confronting predators caught in the act on camera 
and grilling them as they stew in their own confusion, shame, and fear. Around this time, an old friend of Hansen's also had his sights set on taking down predators on camera for the news. Kevin Dietz at Channel 4, the friend that Hansen had handed over the beeper full of contacts to those years ago, had participated in a similar investigation back in Detroit. This investigation was headed up by an internet predator watchdog group that specialized in catfishing child predators on the internet and luring them to locations to be caught on camera or arrested. They were going from town to town, cooperating with local news stations to stage these stings and air them as segments on the news. And Kevin had been chosen at Channel 4 to be the one in front of the camera, confronting the men, showing up to solicit sex from minors. Dietz saw Hansen's Cambodia special and realized that his national notoriety might lend some much-needed exposure to this very worthy cause. So he called up Chris and told him that the watchdog group he was collaborating with on the Detroit Predator Sting was shopping around an idea for a TV show to news networks, that Hansen would probably be very interested in hearing their pitch, and that if he acted fast, he could become the face of this TV show. Yes, that's right, Chris Hansen did not create the show he became known for. It was actually a pitch by this watchdog group, and Hansen was simply selected to be the face of it because of his influence at Dateline as well as his proven track record for being good at it. This watchdog group was called Perverted Justice. But who is Perverted Justice? And why does their name sound kind of wrong? Do 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 demon humming songs that he only knows from his planet that or humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Uh, do you by any chance happen to have any more of those, uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hilsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a creator-owned series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. great, 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 cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll, I'll take whatever. 50? Really? Wow. I didn't know uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them? There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. Act 2, and justice for all perverts. What are you picturing when you think of the organization behind an operation dedicated to busting child predators? A team of dedicated and passionate empaths altruistically burning the midnight oil to bring these vile criminals to justice? A lone gunman-style group of world-weary vigilantes consumed with the obsession of exterminating corruption in the world? How about a bunch of internet trolls with questionable motives who just find it funny to watch pedophiles squirm? If the name Perverted Justice sounds kind of off to you, 
It's probably because, despite retconning themselves years later as moral crusaders dedicated to exposing as many pedophiles as possible, the organization started out as a humor website, wherein members would pose as underage kids in chat rooms, catfish predators, and post their chat logs to the public for entertainment value. The organization started in 2001 when co-founder Xavier von Erich, real name Philip John Eide, had a somewhat popular blog called TheAngryGerman.com. Part of his site was dedicated to trolling people in Yahoo chat rooms. But it wasn't morally reprehensible criminals. It was stuff like foot fetishes and members of the LGBTQ community. Eventually, he had the idea to troll pedophiles, which was less about a desire to expose them and more just an escalation of his chat room trolling gimmick that was becoming more and more popular. If people eat up these hilarious chat logs of me making fun of dudes who are in defeat, they're going to love me outing actual, real online predators. It was the equivalent of a stand-up comedian finding their voice after years of experimentation. What's the deal with these pedos? <laughs> Seriously. That's not even far off. To be fair though, as most people do, Von Erich did hate pedophiles. He wasn't detached from the situation entirely, and it really brings up the moral gray of altruism and the media's involvement with social change again. Von Erich was undoubtedly catfishing child predators because he thought it was funny. It was ratcheting up the clicks on his blog, and later on, as he started to craft his own mythology, he convinced himself he was some kind of moral crusader having a positive impact on the world, which undoubtedly boosted the ego of a lonely, self-described, misanthropic, loner internet troll who opined to hate humanity. However, it makes it hard to believe that he was really trying to do a morally righteous thing like he now claims he always was when you read some of his early blog posts from this time, like this one where he expresses his misanthropic worldview. Humanity is, at best, a festering sore of illogical individuals who strive to be special flowers, unique and open-minded. Befriending people with all their problems simply invites something worse than having no social life. Having one you hate. That burdens you without rewarding you. So, I will continue to live my life the way it is set up. No friends, no real activities. Nothing. Or this screed about how much he hates babies. Babies. I simply cannot stand them. They shit, they pee, they cry. That's all. They do nothing. They are good for nothing. They should not be taken to restaurant to cry and cry and cry, making me want to kill, making my ears bleed. They are not cute. How are they cute? They don't even look human. They're bald, they, they're pint-sized, they drool. They make godforsaken Teletubby sounds. And the only reason people like them, or want to have them, is because they are insecure and they need these little urchins to give the point to their life. Or how about this blog post where he literally implies that children should be exposed to a sexually explicit environment without legal repercussions? Hey, a couple of parents throw a party for their star quarterback. So they get a stripper, some pot, and some alcohol. Are they facing the prospect of a year in jail? Why in the name of all that is... Is that Keebler? Yeah. He's a, he says that a couple times. He's what, like a, what is that? He's just a weird internet troll. Some, it's just like a, some weird internet <clears throat> slang that I'm just not familiar with from the 2000s. I don't think it's anything specific. It's just like when you're when you're like a weird edge lord internet troll or like a early 2000s like so random like blogger. You say weird stuff like what in the name of H G Abraham Lincoln or what? Like it's just weird yeah. random bullshit. Hmm. Why in the name of all that is Keebler should anyone care? Oh, that's right. Those kids were 15 to 18. Of course those ages shouldn't be able to see naked women smoke pot or drink alcohol. I mean, we need to have our kids paying taxes, driving, and being able to be conscripted into the military. You may pay the government, and 
die for the government, but damn you for thinking you're an adult. What a stupid society. Repeat, what a stupid society. Of course, all this relates back to indirect harm. I love indirect harm. It can get used to justify anything if you use a faulty causal relationship. Or how about this rant about wanting to go on a killing spree? So, after suicidal thoughts, I turn my thoughts to killing sprees. No, not indiscriminate, psychotic killing sprees where I shoot innocent people for no good reason, although that is tempting. Targeted ones. For example, I launch an assault on a NAMBLA meeting. Dead idiots everywhere. Perhaps I break into handgun control ink with a knife and eviscerate everyone. Something. Some form of complete destructicity. After going down the K-hole of Von Erich's old blog posts, it's very clear that his primary goal was to just unleash his aggression upon humanity. Pedophiles just happen to be the perfect target because everyone would be on his side, which in a lot of ways is is a lot of what's going on with this whole QAnon thing, which is like this orchestrated sabotage job towards a certain group of people that you don't like. Like, oh, you know, we don't like liberals or we don't like Democrats or we don't like these people. And we don't we don't think that the Black Lives Matter protests are valid or we don't think that COVID is a big deal like everyone's making it out to be. So they've hit upon this perfect tactic, which is if you just pretend like you are taking this moral high ground of like, but what about the children? What about the horrible child sex trafficking that's going on in the Hollywood liberal elite and all these things? And you accuse these people who are outspoken liberals or outspoken whatever that goes against you of being pedophiles. And you Photoshop their names onto flight logs of, you know, of Jeffrey Epstein. It's like you implicitly gain this upper hand and make the argument much easier to win because anybody who's arguing against you is by default siding with pedophiles. So it's just this like perfect skeleton key tactic to winning a moral argument. And it's kind of similar to what he was doing. He was masking his desire to exact his aggression on the world under this morally altruistic thing that maybe to a certain degree he cared about it in that way, but I don't think it was the primary reason why he was doing it. But does it matter if the end product was objectively a good thing? I mean, nobody can argue that even in these early days of perverted justice being a humor website, they weren't objectively helping to expose online predators who had been lurking in the darkness, getting away with their crimes for who knows how long. Also, as perverted justice and their chat log drop started to gain a reputation, it had an actual noticeable effect on the frequency of predatory behavior in the chat rooms, as people started to become scared of getting caught and exposed by them. This feeds into a much larger discussion about intent versus impact and ethics versus end result. So, a subdomain of the angriest German popped up, Perverted Justice. Von Erk teamed up with a fellow online troll, Frank Finspost, to start going into chat rooms and luring in the predators. The two actually kind of hated each other and for all intents and purposes were rivals in their online community, but they both hated child predators and both saw the opportunity to exploit the gimmick for online clout. But if Von Erich was doing this with questionable motives, Fencepost made him look like Mother Teresa, the fake idealized selfless humanitarian version of Mother Teresa we learned about in school, not the homophobic, ableist, abusive profiteer that she actually was. Anybody want a Deep Cuts episode about that? Anyway, Fencepost was even more in it for the lols than Von Erich was. The whole thing was a joke to him. For instance, here's a list of rules that Finspost put up on the Perverted Justice subdomain. Do not call these perverts every hour on the hour from midnight to 6am, asking for hot, hot ass. Do not offer these numbers to Jehovah's Witnesses. 
telling them that you need as many prayer meetings as you can possibly get. Posting these numbers in a gay phone sex chat is, number one, a terrible, terrible thing. Do not do that. Please do not do that. Say what you want about this sarcastic urging for people to harass these online predators. It's difficult to have any kind of sympathy for them. But trying to trick a bunch of lonely gay men into calling child predators? Come on, man. One time, Frank posted the chat logs of an 18-year-old purportedly talking to a 14-year-old decoy. But they never discussed anything sexual, and the decoy, played by Frank, tried to solicit the guy to meet up, but he said no. Despite not having said anything improper or predatory, the chat log was posted along with his private phone number to the website simply because an 18-year-old was chatting with a 14-year-old? I mean, I guess it's kind of weird. Frank would also regularly trick predators into coming to his house with food, thinking they were coming to hang out with a minor, and he'd answer the door with a baseball bat, force them to give him the food, and make them leave. Which is kind of funny, but still not the behavior you'd expect from a supposedly serious and dedicated organization. Give me that fucking pizza! <laughs> There's like literally like he based his entire persona around doing that. His profile photo and all of his like online accounts on different platforms was a picture of him holding up a baseball bat and then like shoving like a burger into his mouth. And that was like the thing, you know, like in Inglorious Bastards, the bear Jew, which is like he was known for like beating the shit out of Nazis with a baseball bat. He was known for luring pedophiles to his house and robbing them, basically. <laughs> <laughs> which is like i said it's kind, it's it's kind almost, of funny it's almost good it's almost yes. good <laughs> the integrity of a lot of the stuff that comes out of this era of perverted justice severely comes into question in 2003 they were rapidly growing and as they grew they added more contributors and decoys to the site at this point two key figures would join perverted justice they were frag and del harvey who will come into play later also xavier von Erk. Frank Fencepost, Frag, Del Harvey? This sounds like some mystery men, ragtag crew of misfit superhero bullshit. It does. I mean, let's be real. One, Flaming Carrot is great. Two, Bob Burden is great. Three, Mr. Man was a dope movie. Four, Xavier Von Erich is like, I feel like that's the name of the guy from Mutant X, the bullshit bootleg X-Men show that came out in the 2000s. Like, yeah. I feel like that's just his name. Up until this point, part of Perverted Justice's creed was to never involve law enforcement. This was probably largely due to Von Erich's strict libertarian beliefs, insisting that private citizens could take care of their own without the involvement of city, state, or federal government. And it just even further hammers home that the early years of PJ were genuinely about entertainment value, other than the embarrassment of being exposed, and in some cases, some intense online and phone harassment, most of these predators never saw any actual justice or legal repercussions for what they did, at least not from the perverted justice catfishes. But all that changed in 2003. The site was getting bigger, and PJ was starting to face backlash from critics about the fact that they weren't actually getting these predators arrested, simply mocking them on a blog for funsies. So Von Erich finally agreed to change the site's policy. Law enforcement from any jurisdiction, where any specific predator they outed was chatting from, was allowed to reach out to the site about using chat logs to help them make an arrest. It seems pretty obvious that this was, at first, meant to just be a symbolic act to assuage the detractors and Von Erich didn't actually expect any cops to initiate a conversation. But they did. Oh, they did. From this point on, perverted justice actually started genuinely getting online predators put behind bars. They boasted 300 to 500 busts in cooperation with law enforcement that year. By 2004, it had doubled to nearly 1,000. Von Erich, undoubtedly surprised by the response from law enforcement, gobsmacked by the fact that his silly website was actually becoming a real resource for criminal justice, and drunk on the righteous indignation of backing into the role of hero of all children and parents, made a sharp left turn in optics at this point. 
Suddenly, it wasn't for the laws anymore, and he was no longer a misanthropic loner. Perverted Justice was a serious watchdog group dedicated to ending the scourge of online predators. Von Erk was their savior-in-chief. Yet another puzzle piece falls in place, and not one of the corner ones, a middle piece that's just a solid color, one of the hard ones. The press became interested in what PJ was doing, and suddenly they were getting interest from local news stations to bring some exposure and resources to the cause. The proposition was simple. The news station would payroll a sting operation in which a house would be rented out, cameras hidden everywhere, and then Perverted Justice would use their decoy gimmick, not just to create a bunch of chat logs for internet users to hate read and feel superior about, but to lure these predators to the house under the guise of hooking up with a minor, at which point a reporter would confront them about why they were there, watch them squirm, and get it all on camera for viewers at home to hate watch and feel superior about. They conducted these one-off sting operations for news stations in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, St. Paul, Minnesota, Atlanta, Georgia, and Kansas City, Kansas. These stings started to get national attention, and suddenly news stations from all over the country wanted to work with PJ. But the most significant of these early stings happened at good old Channel 4 in Detroit. And guess who the on-camera reporter was for this one? Kevin Dietz, the friend who Chris Hansen had gifted his beeper full of contacts before leaving. The national attention brought some heat to perverted justice, and riding that momentum all the way to the top, they started pitching the idea of doing a show based around their stings on a national news station. And Dietz, who had the insider information from working with him, reached out to Hansen to tell him that the idea might be right at home at Dateline where he worked. After all, Hansen had helped him out at a pivotal moment in his career, and he had a proven track record of being exactly the right person to be the face of a show like this. Hansen and Dateline started talking to them. And despite a bidding war amongst news orgs, Perverted Justice ultimately chose NBC and Dateline, largely because of Kevin Dietz's personal endorsement, but also because one of the predators they busted in one of their several stings was a higher-up executive at ABC. Talk about a conflict of interest. Ooh, ABC, more like AB News. Yep. ABC, more like ABC in jail. Can, I, I love this comedic persona. ABC, more like ABC. Don't want to go there. No, don't want to. Don't want to party with you. You are you are not good guys. No, no. You got it the third time. <laughs> Perverted justice had always had detractors. People who were critical of their ethics and practices, who labeled what they did as vigilante justice, who thought their work was shoddy and wouldn't be able to stick, as well as those who heavily criticized the fact that they didn't work with law enforcement. But now more than ever, they needed to get their household in order before receiving the kind of attention that a nationally syndicated news program about such a serious topic would bring them. So Von Erich started making some major changes to their practices. First and foremost, Frank Finspost was fired from the company. Vince Post would later claim that the firing was because he was critical of perverted justice's sudden commitment to securing convictions for their chat logs and stings, even more cementing how he in particular really was just doing it for the laughs and public humiliation. But Von Erich publicly said that it was because he had threatened his girlfriend, and even if both of those things were true, which it seems like they probably were, the underlying main reason was probably just de-risking PJ's public reputation. Fence posts had always been an unpredictable and unruly part of the organization, much more volatile and doing the job for ethically gray reasons than anybody else, and they just couldn't afford the bad PR that his involvement would bring them. What uh, What do you think Frank Fencepost is doing these days? <laughs> we gotta find him on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, what are any of these early 2000s live journal era internet trolls doing? I mean, they weren't even internet trolls. It was, it was like before that was a thing. Like just these people who would just blog these ranting screeds and they would, 
you know, go on to message boards and 4chan and things like that and just like rant about things and like get into arguments. They developed like a community around that, but that, you know, that community doesn't necessarily exist anymore because it's sort of been broken out into this, the grander internet and social media ecosystem. So everything is kind of that now. So you can't really be famous for that anymore because everybody goes onto social media and rants and gets into arguments and things like that. So yeah, what, what, where did any of these people go after you know Facebook came out and stuff? In an interesting twist, Frank Fence posts. I don't know what his real name is, but obviously Frank Fence post is an alias, mm-hmm. the pseudonym, and that pseudonym is an homage to a First Nations film. Uh, called Dance Me Outside, where one of the main characters is named Frank Fencepost, um, which I've never seen, but that's interesting that uh, he named himself after this character. I think he, I think he actually was First Nations. Cool. Yeah, I think that's probably why that is. Yeah. Um, I think I've, I. I don't think I mentioned that in this, but because uh, I, I I didn't really focus on him as much as some of the things I was reading were, but. I think he was actually Native American. That's cool. Um, well, yeah, I uh, everything on my rudimentary quick Google search is just about the movie character Frank Fence Post. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sure he doesn't he doesn't use that name in years. Although it's interesting, it's interesting because we're going to talk about this later, much later. But Del Harvey works at Twitter, and she actually goes by that name. It's not oh, her. Really? Yeah, she just still goes by Del Harvey. Weird. And Xavier von Erich, he uh, he legally changed his name to that. So that's just his name now. They also started hammering out strict rules for decoying so that the chat logs would be admissible in a court of law. They specifically needed to set ground rules so that the chat logs could not be classified as entrapment, which is a real concern when you are not actually catching a criminal in the act of crime, but rather luring them into a trap and prompting them to commit the crime. So after kayfabing a watchdog organization into existence, gaining national attention, and establishing themselves as a righteous protector of children, it was time for the next stage in perverted justice's journey. In 2004, teamed up with the nationally known hard-hitting journalist Chris Hansen, perverted justice was ready to premiere their TV show to the world. It was originally known as Dark Web, but we all know it as To Catch a Predator. We all know about the massive rise to popularity of To Catch a Predator, but many don't know about its even bigger crash and burn, the fact that it eventually led to a man's suicide, or the insane lengths that old Chrissy Hanhans went to make a comeback. Find out about all that and more on part two of Deep Cuts, case file number 29, Chris Hansen. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com, where you can find comics like Fuck Off Squad and Action Hospital and Shitty Watchmen and a bunch of other stuff. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me selling crack on the streets of Detroit under the watchful tutelage of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye and Crack. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.
The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. And the Dead Boy Detectives, who... Who?